I want you to read out loud with me this morning the verse that is our theme verse for this whole month, all right? You heard it last week. We talked a lot about it last week. Now let's read it out loud together, all right? It'll be on the screen. Ready? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. One more time. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. One evening this week, our granddaughter, Addie, came over for a visit, and she brought with her a DVD, and I don't know where she had gotten it, but it was a DVD of the old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer claymation that was, you know, done back in the 1960s when, when I was a kid. I remember watching that one. And she, she came up, and the cover of the DVD had all of the characters that show up in that movie. And she came up to me, and she pointed to the abominable snow creature, and she said, Starry Monster. And then she said, watch Starry Monster? <laughs> so we sat down, and we watched Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And every time the abominable snow creature came onto the screen, she would snuggle up close to Elsie. And then when he would go off the screen, she would look at me, and she'd say, more Starry Monster? She didn't want him, and she wanted him all at the same time. Fear is a strong emotion in our lives and drives so much of what happens to us. How many of you have ever said something like this? Man, I was just scared to death when that happened. That can actually happen. We now know, according to what research was done in the 1994 Los Angeles earthquake. Over a hundred Californians literally died of fright, according to Dr. Robert Cloner, cardiologist at Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. His research revealed that excessive fear can cause sudden cardiac death. In many cases, a frightened brain triggers the release of a mix of chemicals so potent that it causes the heart to constrict and it never releases, and people die as a result. Anthropologists who have studied other cultures, primitive cultures, where there's like a witch doctor or a medicine man, say that fear plays an incredible role in the lives of the people. When the witch doctor places a curse on you, the people are so frightened and believe so strongly in the power of that curse that they withdraw from their society, they stop eating and they stop drinking, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They believe the power is in the witch doctor, but the power is actually in the fear. Right now, some of us in this room are fairly relaxed. You dropped your fears at the door. You dropped your burdens at the door. You seem to be pretty relaxed. Most of you here this morning are not scared to death, although before I finish this sermon, some of you will at least look like you have gone to the other life. But once you walk out of these doors, I'm afraid you're going to pick up your burdens at the door. You're going to pick up your fears again at the door. And all of these things that you stop worrying about, you're going to start worrying about again. And the impact can be unnerving sometimes debilitating, even paralyzing. That is the power of fear that works on us. And have you thought about the sources of our fear? We fear financial failure, repossessed houses and retirement funds that go belly up. We fear parental meltdowns that mess up our children's lives, breakups in our marriages because of a breakdown in our marriage vows, and shakeups at work that take down our careers. 
We fear the dark, monsters under our beds, and sounds that go bump in the night. We fear moving to a new school or the new kid that moves to the desk next to ours. We fear changing jobs, changing houses, changing communities, changing churches, and changing direction in life. We fear battles with our spouse, conflicts with our friends, confrontations with our boss, and going into combat against our enemies. We fear the medical alphabet, MRI tunnels, CAT CAT scans, X-ray films, upper and lower GI tests. We fear inoperable cancer, debilitating dementia, massive heart attacks, and paralyzing strokes. We fear funeral homes, caskets, vaults, and cemeteries. We're scared to death of death. In the holiday classic Charlie Brown's Christmas special, Lucy the psychiatrist is trying to diagnose Charlie Brown's emotional problems. And assuming that Charlie Brown's problem is fear, she lists several of the phobias that could be. And then finally she says, Charlie Brown, maybe you have panphobia, fear of everything. To which Charlie Brown says, that's it, that's it. Did you know there's even a phobophobia? The fear of being afraid. This past week marked the 70th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. In his speech before Congress, President Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It is so true. If we aren't careful, fear will paralyze us. It will stop us dead in our tracks. But now for a moment, just remember the things fear cannot do. Fear has never published a book, written a song, or earned a patent for an invention. Fear has never raised a family or saved a marriage. Fear has never earned a diploma or earned the right to retire from 40 years of commitment to one's job. Fear has never cured a disease or given anyone a second chance at life. One of the reasons I so love reflecting on this story of Christmas is that Jesus came as an answer to our fears. And he alone handles the greatest of our fears, and that's the fear of tomorrow, the fear of the future. What will the future bring? And I know far too many people who can't enjoy life today because they're too scared about tomorrow. That's not how God wants us to live in our existence. But when Jesus came, God changed all of that in us. Now, this might surprise you. Most of the time, you would think that the, the number one most often command or imperative that Jesus ever uttered was, was this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's the greatest command. Eight times in the Gospels, Jesus says that. But that's number two as far as most often quoted commands. Do you know what the number one imperative out of the words of the mouth of Jesus are in the Gospels? 21 times. Jesus says something like this. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Take courage. Be of good cheer. 21 times. His single greatest imperative was to remove Fear from our lives. Listen to a few of these instances. In a lesson to the 12 disciples, this is in Matthew chapter 10, he says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
After the transfiguration, when Jesus met with Elijah and Moses, Peter, James, and John are on their faces on the ground. And Matthew 17 says, Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. In response to the stricken father, Jairus, whose daughter was edging ever closer to death's door, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And she was. And one of my favorites is when Jesus came to the disciples during that horrible storm on the Sea of Galilee, when the disciples who knew the sea better than anybody feared for their very lives, and then they suddenly see this specter rising and falling on the crest of the waves coming toward them. And, and when Jesus finally gets an earshot of the boat, this is what he says. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus wasn't the only one with a message of hope to dispel fear. The angels of the Christmas story use the phrase often. The angel said to Zechariah in the temple, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Nine months later, John the Baptist was born. The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And she gave birth to the very Son of God. The angel said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, and he did. And the angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. As a matter of fact, Christmas, like no other season, is filled with the message of do not be afraid. But Jesus didn't promise that every day would necessarily be good. Jesus didn't say that every day would be fearless because life in a broken world is just that. It's a broken world and tough things happen even to good people. Even in the Christmas story, for all of its joy, there is one tragic, fearful chapter. When the wicked King Herod learned that there was a boy that had been born that was a king, was so infuriated at the thought that he sent his henchmen to the small village of Bethlehem and they killed every boy that was two years old and younger. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that God in this infinite, incredible story of what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of his son, would have somehow prevented anything bad from happening, but God doesn't promise to intervene into every aspect of life. And somewhere, according to what most scholars think, that there were 20 to 30 families who lost boys ages two and younger surrounding the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that what we celebrate is one of the most glorious events of all history? For them was a tragic reminder of their great loss. You see, this is a broken world, and there are going to be tough times, and there are going to be difficult moments, and there will be a bleak and frightening tomorrow. There will be fears. Yesterday, our church buried a good man, Tom Petrie, who served for years as an elder here, who is a man worth modeling your life after. But even Tom was not spared the disease that ultimately took his life in this world far sooner than what any of us wanted. Like wicked King Herod's attack on the innocent, sometimes disease, or financial problems, or family struggles, or the death of a loved one sweeps down upon us without warning and leaves us full of fear about what lies 
ahead. This morning, I want you to see this video. Uh, it's an interview with uh, Cindy and Gary Whitaker, uh, who are a part of our congregation here, but their lives were changed 18 months ago, and it all began with a very scary episode and prognosis. July 29th of 2010, I had a seizure, which was early in the morning, which actually took me out of bed. I ended up on the floor. I was, I was unconscious, so I really don't know much about it. I, I ended up in a hospital, and at that time we were informed that I had a brain tumor, um, which was told to us that it was inoperable, and I was given five years to live. And, um, you know, what God had done is I had a friend come into the room all of a sudden. This friend lives out of town. And uh, he walks into the room, and he starts shaking his head, and he says, you need to go to this place. So that kind of opened the door for us for where we needed to go. So we, so we left town, went to another town, and found a hospital where they directly worked with us and said, yes, we can map this out. We can do this surgery. It took a couple of weeks for it to get prepared. I went in for seven hours of surgery. It was an awake surgery, which is kind of different. Um, I was put out for a little bit and then brought back during the surgery and I had to read cards actually during brain surgery. So I, I'm sure it's not something that everybody would like to do, but I did read the entire surgery, which, which kept him from hitting. And it was on the left side, so there's a speech part over there. I talked the entire time reading cards and when I started to mumble some words, he stopped because he knew he would affect my speech. So he got 95% of the tumor out. I only have 5% of the tumor left, which uh, I know right there, just, it just makes me stand up and applause because I know what God had done for me. He, he directed us through this entire thing. He gave us the information on where we needed to go to get it done. And he gave us the, the I guess, doctors that could actually perform the procedure. The recovery was a long time coming. Uh, he. Whenever he first came to, he was able to speak. Um, they would ask, who is this? He was able to say, this is my wife, Cindy. A few hours after that, um, he started talking in numbers, and he would say, they would ask, what is your wife's name? And he would say, 12-24-7. So that was difficult for me because going from perfect or as normal as he could be after surgery to talking in numbers, that was very hard. Uh, that got better. He started to improve, um, and he improved daily. We were in the hospital for about nine days, and whenever I brought him home, though, he was about the age of three. Um, so I had to reteach everything. Um, had to teach him how to dress, mm -hmm. that you don't wear polka dots and stripes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that um, he. This is how you make your coffee. Mm -hmm. How to shave again. How to do just everything all over again. Um, and that recuperation went fairly well. I took some time off of work, and uh, yes. he's done very well. Um, what he did not know going into this, um, his job, he's a federal investigator, so he did a lot of teaching to other investigators. And the surgeon asked me going in, how far do you want me to go with this? Do you want me to do speech, or do you want me to do his walking? Because... The tumor was from here to here. So according to where the brain is and him having to cut, he could affect different functions. I opted for his speech because at that point in time, he did a lot of talking to the other investigators, which is very important to him. Uh, but now God has presented me with a man who can walk and talk. 
in honesty, I'm a happy camper. I, I'm happy to have this because it has changed my life. Right. It's taken me in the right direction where if I would have kept going the other way, where would I be? This is God's journey for us. It is. Yeah. And we have three words that we live by. Believe, faith, and trust. And he came up with these words probably seven months into the recovery. Believe, I came up with believe uh, just because I believe in God. I believe in his word, and I believe he sacrificed Jesus for us. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so our sins are forgiven. We have eternal life. And I have the trust because I trust all of God's words. I read the Bible. I trust what he says and what he does. And I have faith because I know God will heal me. And I, I live by those and I go by those. And that's kind of how my life runs and it takes all the worries away. It does. No matter what we're up against, we always know that we're going to prevail mm -hmm. because we have God. I know Gary and Cindy's faith has grown tremendously during this time, but it is a reminder that God never promised he would remove all the fears. He just promised the antidote. So today when the staring monsters overwhelm you, think about what we find in Proverbs chapter 3. This to me is the most succinct way to handle your fears. It reads like this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Gary and Cindy introduced us to the first concept there and it's simply this, trust, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Now this isn't so much about developing wisdom as it is developing this trust with God. Although Dave Bland in his commentary reminds us that this is really the definition of wisdom, trusting the Lord with all of our heart and its counterpart, fearing the Lord with all of our heart. They both are synonymous. David wrote in Psalms 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Isn't it interesting? The best way to handle our unfounded fear is to fear him who can conquer our fears. Now, it's not the same kind of fear. When we talk about fearing God, we're talking about a deep-seated respect. Uh, the kind of respect that a child has for a loving parent. And yet, knowing that the authority that that parent has can at times be a fearful thing. To trust in the Lord and to fear the Lord means to surrender yourself totally to his care. And I'm here to tell you, that's difficult. Trust is challenging enough when you're dealing with somebody with skin on. I'll be honest, at times it's hard for me to completely trust God. You can't see him, and you can't hear him, and sometimes when he answers my prayers with a no, even though that may be the best answer in the long run, it's difficult to rely upon him because my fear is he may say no the next time, or he won't be there when I really need him to be there. If you've had a bad experience with an earthly father, then it's even more difficult to trust a heavenly father. If your husband has been unfaithful, then it's doubly hard to trust the one who says, I am the bridegroom of the church. And let's face it, when fear is staring you right in the face, it's hard to trust someone you can't see with your eyes. That's why Proverbs says, trust him with all of your heart. And remember, we talked about this last week. The heart is not the seat of the emotions that we find in the scripture. It is the intellectual and ethical center of our very being. Trust him with all of your being. 
your intellect. Sometimes I, th- I think we misunderstand trust. To trust God doesn't mean you surrender the brain he gave you. God expects you to use your brain. This is not some kind of robotic trust. He expects you to use your brain wisely. Think. To trust God does not mean you stop experiencing fear, pain, or disappointment. Jesus faced all of those things, and yet he trusted the Father in ways that you and I never will. And to trust God doesn't mean you blindly accept what you read or hear. Just because somebody says something and attributes it to God doesn't make it so. I will not willfully lead you astray, but there are times when I just flat make mistakes. So don't take my word for it. You dig deep. You do your own study. You get into the word and understand what God is telling you because that's where wisdom comes from. And the more you grow in his wisdom, the easier the trust will be. And you'll discover that trust has come when the promise of success in the Savior is greater than the potential of the failure without him. Trust comes when the one who has your back is greater than the one who's in your face. Trust comes when the power available to you is greater than the problem afflicting you in the midst of your fears. Trust the Lord. Then the second principle he gives us here is this one. Don't lean on your own understanding. Or as it appears in verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. That, That concept crops up nine times in the book of Proverbs. And I know we like to think that we're smart people and that we're wise people. And really, frankly, people, we have more knowledge available to us today than we've ever had in history. But that doesn't necessarily make it always right. I mean, there's been plenty of times in history where we thought we had the truth and and we didn't. Some generations ago, when you had a bad fever or disease and the doctor couldn't get you better, he often determined that it was in your blood. So if we drain some of your blood out of your body, you'll get better. Who knows how many people died because the bloodletting only weakened the body's resistance. At one time it was thought that the earth was flat. At one time it was thought that the earth was the center of the universe. We know those things aren't true. At one time it was thought spontaneous generation was true, that living things grew out of inanimate objects. All of that we know and kind of laugh at today. So what will we be laughing at that we believe today, 25 years from now? You see, we don't always get it right. Our wisdom just isn't always there. That's why you have to seek his way. That's why you lean on his understanding. That's why you trust his word. Don't lean on your own understanding. Your best case scenario when you do that is just being embarrassed. Worst case scenario is it may devastate your life. It's my understanding that women have long felt that there was something amiss or something fishy about Santa's Christmas Eve flight and Now they claim they have proof. According to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, while both male and female reindeer grow antlers in the summer each year, male reindeer drop their antlers at the beginning of winter, usually late November to mid-December. Female reindeer, however, retain their antlers until after they give birth in the spring. Now, if that's true, then according to all historical renditions depicting Santa's reindeer, every single one of them, from Rudolph to Blitzen, had to be a female. And some people say, we should have known this. Only women while pregnant would be able to drag a fat man in a red velvet suit all around the world in one night and not get lost. So don't lean on your own understanding. See, what we've been told all these years just isn't accurate. Dig deep. Get into God's Word. Pray for wisdom, and God says He'll 
give us wisdom. And that's the wisdom that will dispel your fears. Here's the last thing. In all of your ways, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. Point your life to him. Direct your life to him. Submit your life to him. Following God can be both exhilarating and frustrating at the same time. Graham Cook writes, he says, God is consistent, but he's also unpredictable. He is consistent in his nature. You always know where you stand with God, but you seldom know what he's going to do next. You cannot find security in what God is doing. You can only find security in who God is. I I love it that God is unpredictable and that every day is a new adventure with him. So being afraid of tomorrow is unnecessary if you're following him. So keep following, keep growing, keep studying, keep serving, keep leaning on him, keep trusting, keep acknowledging him and your dependence on him, and he'll take you on the ride of your life. He'll make your paths straight. He'll give you a life that has straightforward direction and obvious purpose. He'll give you freedom from your fears. One of my favorite Americans of past history is Booker T. Washington. I don't know if you've read much of his life, but it's a fascinating life. And he writes about his young life among the plantation slaves being awakened every morning by a rooster's crow. Long before daybreak, the unwelcome sound would fill the slave shanties, reminding young Washington that it was time to head to the cotton fields. That rooster's crow, he said, symbolized their fears, their long days, and their back-breaking toil. And then it happened. Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all the slaves. The first morning afterward, young Booker was again awakened by the rooster, only this time it was his mother chasing it with an axe. The Washington family fried and ate that rooster for lunch. Their first act of freedom was to silence the reminder of their fears and hardships. That's what Jesus does for each of us. He silences our fears and the remembrance of our hardships. So when the starry monsters overwhelm and overshadow your life, you cling to these words penned by the prophet Isaiah. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What fear can't you face tomorrow with that promise in your heart? Do you know him this morning as your Savior? Because if you don't, you let go of the fear.